This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Phyllis Costanza. Phyllis heads UBS in society and the UBS Optimist Foundation, which is widely regarded as the corporate philanthropic engine that employs the most rigor, intelligence, strategic vision, and tactical execution. This really occurred to me last week when yet another philanthropist who thinks deeply about ROI, how to save the most lives and to ameliorate the most suffering per dollar invested, said to me, and this is yet another person who said the same thing, you really need to meet with the people at Optimus. Now, of course, because it's always in that context when Optimus and his leader, Phyllis Costanza, are mentioned. So Phyllis, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I've never done a podcast like this, so it's exciting. Oh, terrific. So your chosen passage is from Deuteronomy 1620, and it's the famous passage, Justice, Justice Shall You Pursue. So um, just talk a little bit about the passage and why it's so meaningful to you. Right. So the, so the passage is Tzedek Tzedek Tirdaf, which is, as you said, justice, justice, you shall pursue. Most of us know Tzedakah commonly refers to as charity. Tzedek means actually justice. And this absolutely applies to social justice. And while this particular passage actually primarily centers on the appointment of judges, which is extremely timely right now, as we look at replacing in the United States, one of our Supreme Court justices, it also really references more than just that. And what's interesting about this is that justice is repeated twice. And that's really the crux of this and what makes it so interesting, because the Torah, as we know, is an incredibly concise document. Every single word counts in the Torah. So why are we redundant? Why do we mention this word twice, wasting space and precious word allotment in this document? Every word is meaningful. That's right. Yeah. It wasn't an accident. You know, it wasn't a typo. And there's lots of great rabbinical scholars have thought about this. And there's lots of different interpretations for why it's listed twice. There's the 11th century French rabbi Rashi says that this means that you should seek out a good court and that the duplication tells us that we not only have an obligation to appoint judges widely, but that we need to actually seek out good judges so that we make sure that the court system is a good one. There's others who believe that one Sadek is what we bring to those who are hurting. And the second one is how we really motivate people who are complacent to do more. And then the, the least sophisticated one, but the one that I think resonates with many of us is we say it twice because it is so damn important. And they really wanted to emphasize how important this is to the Jewish religion. So I would say the way I'm interpreting this is a combination of all of that. One is that we should expect there to be justice, but the second one is don't count on it. It is up to each and every one of us to make sure that we live our lives justly, but that we also call out injustices wherever we see them. And we have an obligation to do this. 
Right. And I think another way, probably combined with some of the other interpretations is, yeah, this is the great question which you've identified, which is why is justice used twice? And the Torah will rarely, if ever, use a word twice just for emphasis. It must have two different meanings. And I think one is do justice, but do justice in a just way. So one is referring to the outcome, do justice, and the intermediate justice, so to speak, is saying that it's important how you do it. In other words, your means have to be just and your ends have to be just. And it's not one or the other, it's both. And that's why it says do justice, justice. So pursue justice. And it says pursue, which is interesting. So pursue implies that we'll never quite get there. Yeah, exactly. So it's something, it's, it's this level of perfection that we're striving for always. And, you know, we've seen it right now, what's happened, how this pandemic has really underscored some great injustices that may not have been as obvious to many of us before. The work of a good person is never done. Never done. And that we learned from the Torah because Moses dies without having achieved his goal. He cannot go to the promised land. So it's, it's saying that even the greatest of people, and perhaps especially the greatest of people, will die without having achieved his goal because nothing's done, nothing's complete. But I think it's very interesting that you chose justice, justice, value, pursue, because it really resonates with the work that you do at Optimus in the sense that we've had this discussion many times. A lot of times when people give money, they just do it out of sentimentality, right? It makes them feel good. There's some slogan, there's some maybe graphic, there's some story, a narrative that makes them feel good, but there's no rigor informing their decision. So they might be getting to the second justice, the outcome, they think they are, they're not actually going to get there, but they're not. And why are they not going to get there? They're not going to get there because they don't do the first justice. They don't apply the rigor. It matters how you get there. And I think that's especially true in philanthropy. It is. And, and there's a, been a lot of thought about how to get there in the best way and what should you focus on as a philanthropist. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure actually a great person for your podcast would be Peter Singer. And, you know, his view is we have a moral obligation to focus on people. And if we can save a life with our $3, we have a moral obligation to do that. While I would probably not go that far, because I do think our philanthropy is based on our values and what's important to me. You know, it might be really important to you to fund the arts because you think it's a pillar of a community and it's a way to actually preach in, in quotes, social justice in a community, and it very well may be. Whereas I may want to save a life in some of the most marginalized communities. So I think it's hard to judge, but the way we go about that is important. Otherwise, it is like throwing money down the toilet or worse, it could have negative impacts. Totally. And that's just right. If you don't get the first justice right, you're not going to get the second one right. In fact, you could create injustice unless you get the first one right. That's the negative impacts that you talk about. Yeah, exactly. And I was talking to a group of Christians recently who are big donors in the space of human trafficking. And we were talking about this concept of stewardship and how you steward your money and the responsibility they feel as Catholics to make sure that their money is going towards the right cause. And it's sort of a similar concept about what we're talking about now, that we have an obligation to make sure it's going towards something that is actually going to do some good. And so it's, you know, this is a concept that crosses religious boundaries. And you know that well, because you're funding organizations that cross religious boundaries. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's all with the focus to ROI. And, and, you know, one of the things that you and Optimists are so well known for is the rigor that informs all of your investment, not financial, but philanthropic investment decisions. It's the rigor. And so many philanthropists either 
and this is, I don't even know if it applies to corporate, but it's certainly the case with individuals. So many philanthropists just say, uh, there's no strategy. You know, it's something feels good. Something looks nice. An ego gets stroked and the check is written. And of course, no positive outcome is going to reliably result from that kind of process. Yeah, that's, that's the model we call spray and pray. You, know, you just kind of sprinkle your money around and you just hope, let a thousand flowers bloom, you hope one of them blooms. But there's no real intention that you're going to try to solve a problem. And so we are the bankers to, I think, somewhere like half the world's billionaires now. So we have a responsibility over helping some of the wealthiest people in the world with their philanthropy. And so we actually, you know, we'll stand up always to our clients if they say, hey, you know, I was on a safari in South Africa and I passed this community and there were all these kids and they were running around and, you know, a lot of the parents have died of AIDS. And so I'm going to build an orphanage in that community. And we say to them, look, that is extremely harmful for children. It is the worst place for children. Most of those children, in fact, have a living parent, maybe not both, but they have at least one living parent and they have living relatives. And they're going to be much better off no matter how poor they are growing up in their families, not in a house with children where they're much more likely to experience sexual abuse, to be undernourished, uneducated. And that's a hard message because oftentimes clients will come to us and say, you know, oops, I already did that in another community. Right. And, and it's a hard message for a couple other reasons, too. One, they're your client. And two, billionaires are not used to being criticized. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you're doing both. Yeah. What makes people very successful if wealthy is not necessarily the same skills that enables them to do really smart philanthropy. Well, maybe it actually is the same skills, but they're not applying it because no one ever became rich not being criticized of anybody. And yet when it comes to philanthropy, so often people are telling rich people how great and how generous and how wonderful, how special they are. Yeah. And what you're saying is let's apply some rigor and let's earn those things. Exactly. And we, you know, we do that by asking a lot of questions like, oh, what, you know, why did you decide to build a school in this remote village? What is it that you're trying to achieve? And then once you dig down, ultimately, you know, comes from the best place. These people, if, if somebody, for instance, decided to build a school in a remote village and fill it with great books from the United States where nobody even speaks English there, you know, it, it came from the best place. It's not like they wanted to do harm. But uh, and once you start to ask them, what are you really trying to do here? They really do want to improve people's lives. And if we start at that and ask ourselves, what is the best way to do it? What is, you know, the most just way to do it? Then you can find the solution. Just keep asking why. Yeah, like in our work in Africa, and we've talked about this, you know, we've seen companies do it. They'll send huge amounts of really expensive equipment without asking, is there a power grid that can support the equipment? Are there trained personnel who can work the equipment? What happens when the equipment, like all equipment does, breaks down and needs parts? Is there a replaceable part infrastructure? Like these basic, seemingly, or should be basic questions, they're so often not asked. And as a consequence, in that one example, there are rooms in hospitals and that are, not all the time, but there are rooms in hospitals that are filled with equipment that no one will ever touch because there's not enough power, because none of trained personnel, because there's not no replacement parts, because the questions that you require the people you work with to ask aren't even being asked. In other words, the first justice in this Deuteronomic passage is not being addressed. 
Exactly. And Nina Monk, who was a journalist, an author now, um, she did this great expose on something called the play pump. I don't know if you ever saw it, but it was on PBS. And play pump was this really clever idea. It was this playground toy where kids run around it. We've seen them here. And as they're running around, it is pumping water into this big water tower. So that sounds clever. Wow. You know, kids can play on this thing. We're providing them with something to play with. And it also is pumping water into this big tower. And there are all sorts of great plans that we're going to advertise on that tower. They were charged for the water, et cetera. And this all sounded really clever. And this guy was at the Clinton Global Initiative. He got money from all these governments, millions and tens and tens of millions. And he ended up blanketing Africa with these play pumps and, you know, just like kids the world over, after about 10 minutes, the kids got sick of that toy, you know, and the grandmothers are the ones who are doing the pumping of the water and they couldn't spin that thing. That was way too heavy. They needed the hand pump. They had gotten rid of the hand pump. Oh, they got rid of the hand. Wow. They got rid of the hand pumps to replace it with this thing. And it made the situation far worse. So that, that is a great example where if they had simply gone to the community and said, you know, what can you use? They would have said, you know what? The hand pump is fine. This is a cute idea, but it's your cute idea to make you feel better. There's no first justice. Yeah, exactly. And, and part of the first justice in philanthropy is the humility to acknowledge that local knowledge is going to be superior to almost anything else. You go to the people on the ground doing the work, living the life, and you say to them, what do you need and why? And very often or always a better conclusion will emerge than one imposed from outside. Exactly. You know, there's this expression and that we've heard that is um, the one with the pesos has the say-sos. And that is the attitude that many philanthropists go in with. And they say, hey, you know, I'm very successful. I have a lot of money and I can apply the same business mentality that I use to make me successful to solve your problems as well without asking you. Don't worry. I've got this. They say, and we don't. We don't have it. We have no idea. That's right. But they're actually not applying the same methodology because no one ever started a successful business by not talking to the customers. Right. Yeah. I mean, no one ever said, I don't want to hear from the customers. I know what they want. Don't even, don't bother me with what the customers want. I'll tell them what they want. No successful one ever said that. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually sort of an arrogant sense of superiority, you know, which is the ultimate in injustice. That's right. Exactly. Superiority is the ultimate injustice. And, and we see it. Uh, yeah, we, we see it so often. So but, you know, UBS Optimist. So you work with charities in conjunction with your clients. Yet you still reject something like 95 percent of those that come to you. Right. Yeah. And these are ones that come to you from a client, which makes it difficult to reject. And it means a smart person has written a check and yet you're still rejecting 95 percent. That's how rigorous your process is. So what do you see in the 95%? Is there, are there any generalities that you can draw about the 95% that may incorporate some of what we talked to about Deuteronomy 1620? Yeah. So one thing is evidence of impact. And this is that we actually have seen, there is data to show that this solves the problem that we're trying to address. And so there's kind of this objective judge, if we want to apply it to Deuteronomy, I'm just thinking about this on the fly, but it's a way to say like objectively, this works. You know, we've applied a rigorous methodology to evaluate this. And according to the scientific model, whether it's a randomized control trial, which is the most rigorous or whatever methodology it is, and we look at the methodology, 
did this actually achieve the outcomes? Did it do the right thing? So that, that's number one. The second thing is because we know we cannot solve all of the problems of the world, we want to use the small, relatively small amount of money that we're getting from clients and the UBS is putting in to catalyze greater action. So we want to punch above our weight. So if we're giving, let's say, a million dollars to something, we want that to have a $10 million impact. So how do we do that? That's, you know, how is something scalable? And it's three ways. One is either we're going to affect policy change. The second one is we are going to change practice. Maybe people were doing things a way that wasn't as impactful. It was more expensive. And we're going to introduce a way that's, that's going to be cheaper and more impactful. And then the third one is funding. Maybe we can attract deeper pockets than ours. So maybe the government, for instance, in, in cases will find this so helpful and ultimately save them money that they're going to finance it. Right. I think this... Um addresses exactly what we're talking about with regards to Deuteronomy 1620. The two justices need each other and that they cannot exist independently. In other words, you can't get that just outcome unless you have the process that can get you there, which is therefore a manifestation of justice every bit as much as the outcome. So people who want the just outcome in philanthropy, but who aren't willing or aren't able to employ the rigorous methodology which embodies justice in the process aren't going to get their outcome. Yeah. You know, um, there's another interpretation that I read, and I would love to get your thoughts on this as the rabbi's husband. So another interpretation was um, the two types of justices are one, you've got strict law, and the second one is based on compromise. And they give an example about these two boats passing each other. But what it's saying is that the second justice is when we have to kind of negotiate a compromise on what's right. And I really, to be honest, I didn't understand that interpretation. And I'm wondering if you've heard that. That the second justice is a matter of compromising what's right? Yeah. Well, no, not compromising on what's right. But what they say is it's about compromise. So it's perhaps about the way you're going to get there. It's very interesting that in the Torah often emphasizes the importance of the passage that you chose in various ways. Not only the Torah, but biblical commentary. For instance, arguably, or some would say inarguably, the most important idea in Judaism is mass universal education. Invented in the Torah, now we take it for granted. It was completely radical when it was invented in the Torah. You could even say it's crazy in the fact that basically nobody was literate, and Moses bets the future of the Jewish people on universal mass literacy. But Rabbi Hillel taught that a strict person cannot teach. Also, when Cohen, the priest, delivers the priestly blessing, it said he must bless the people with love. If he's delivering the blessing, does it matter what he feels at the moment he's delivering it? The answer is absolutely. The blessing, he cannot deliver the blessing. And this is the case at the Kotel, at Sukkot, at Pesach. You can't deliver the blessing unless you can do it with love. So the spirit that you put into something in the Jewish imagination really informs the success of the outcome. So it's both the justice of the process and the justice of the outcome. It's both the end blessing, but it's also the love that's incorporated in the person when he or she is doing the blessing. It's the mastery of the material, but there better be love that reflects in non-strictness. I think that comes across in how people do philanthropy well, because if you were really doing it with love, 
and you want the best outcome for the people you're serving, you have no self-interest. It's not an ego thing. You know, you're not trying to prove something to anybody. You are simply trying to do what you think works and what you know works. And, And I think that is why we apply such a rigorous standard. And it's not about trying to make our clients feel good about what they're doing. What we're saying to our clients when we help them with their grant making, if we don't approve something, we're saying it matters that we're trying to do the absolute best thing we can with your money because we have an obligation to do that. And that is the just thing to do. And that is the right thing to do. And that's coming from a place where all we care about is doing the right thing not being right or promoting some particular type of philanthropy. You know, a lot of philanthropy is ego-driven and, and we see that with names on buildings everywhere. You know? <laughs> what better exhibit of, of ego is there than that? No, yeah, we certainly do. And it's very interesting because I, I suppose when one does philanthropy with love, they're going to welcome the rigor that you apply. Yeah, and they do. I mean, that's why I have so much fun working with you because you appreciate that. Really appreciate it, yeah. And I think you respect that we might say, Hey, you know what? This program stinks. And I remember our early conversations when you said, "Mm, you know, we don't have to do analysis as to whether or not this works. We know this works. We know this works. I mean, but you were open to it. And when we started to look at the actual indicators, you said, hey, you know what? Yeah, we, we can make it better. Let's make this better. And you were really open to making it as good as it could possibly be. Right. And yes, and some of the challenge with measurement in philanthropy is how are things measured? For instance, you know, we've talked about if you need to put up a power plant to support a hospital, what's the unit of measurement that can judge that? So sometimes it's difficult, but in that case, there's always rigor. There's always rigor. I mean, you would never say, I'm just sentimental about power. I mean, it's, you can make an assumption that it's infrastructure and what infrastructure does is make everything else possible. So it is sometimes challenging to figure out what the um, specific measurement points are with an infrastructure investment, but it's always crucial to apply that kind of rigor. And I think your point about love is so important too, because the only way that someone is going to be open to hearing no is if they love the potential outcome. Right. Exactly. And they just want it to be better. They want it to be more efficient. They want it to be more effective. It has to be out of love. You know, I think that's probably why, you know, all the studies have shown that the people who give the most are people of faith, all faiths, but people who are of faith, because it's the love of God that inspires so much of this kind of giving. And that, you know, if I can help God's children who are so much less advantaged than I am to have better lives, then I'm listening. You know, it's not about oneself. It's about something greater. I agree completely. And I hope that people listen to this and really think about why they're doing something. And I love your description of the rationale there and why it's so important to think about more than just yourself in this equation, that there's a bigger reason. Right. There almost has to be. Now, Phyllis, thank you for such a fascinating discussion of so many topics that emanate from the truth of Deuteronomy 16.20. And the concluding question always goes from uh, one text, the uh, sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Melrue's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. On the first page of the book, he says, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Phyllis, in all of your years, really as the leader in corporate philanthropy, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Wow, that's a great question. 
So I would say um, the two things that I've learned is that generosity comes in incredible ways. You know, wealthy individuals tend to give money and that's their way of being generous. But some of the most touching and moving moments of charity or tzedakah I've seen from least able to give. And so that is probably the most touching thing that I see. They give until it hurts. It doesn't hurt me or you to give a few thousand dollars here or there at all. I think that's such a profound insight. Absolutely. I mean, it's, um, I'll never forget, Erica and I were speaking at a church in Buffalo, our friend Bishop Robert Stern's church, and this woman came up and we were talking about African mission healthcare and they did an offering. And this woman came up and put $20 in the plate. And she had said that she had just gotten the $20 from someone who had handed it to her because she was so destitute. She looked at it and someone walked at it and gave it to her. And she just said, I want to offer this to you. She was, and then she explained she didn't even have money for transportation to the church. So she did this or that. She had nothing. And yet she gave $20. And I said to our kids, that is our most generous donor. You just met her. She just met our most generous donor because she made a sacrificial gift. It's what the Christians call a sacrificial gift. No rich people make sacrificial gifts. No, no. Give till it hurts. Mm-mm. You know, it's what my friend uh, Rabbi David Wolpe said. He said, I've been a rabbi for, I think, 40 years or something like that. He said, I've been a rabbi for 40 years and no one's ever come to my office and said, Rabbi, I've hit financial difficulty because I gave too much to charity. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Wow. I'd like to see that day. And I guess the second one is what's interesting is I take a lot of wealthy individuals out to sub-Saharan Africa and India, and we meet with some of the most marginalized communities. I mean, people who have been through unspeakable horrors. And um, the tragic thing that I've seen is they are often much happier than we are. So maybe it's a truth about humanity that we here are trying to help those who oftentimes could be helping us, frankly. I would say it's mutual. In the Hebrew, the word um, to give, natan, is as it is in the English, it's a palindrome. It reads the same way backwards and forwards. And I think the teaching there is that when you really give charitably, there's no notion of I just give it and that's it. It's when you give, you also receive, which is why the word itself is a palindrome, natan. Yeah, so I, I mean, I've learned, I learn a lot from our clients, but I learn, I would say, the most from the people we're trying to help. So in terms of your clients, like when you reject the client, like when a client says, here's a charity that's really important to me, I want you to partner with me on it. They know you're open for partnership. So, you know, you can't say, we just don't do that. Instead, you have to say... It's an awkward conversation. Right. No, that, that, that's what I'm fascinated by it. So how does, what happens 95% of the time which speaks, by the way, so highly of UBS that you're willing to have that courage and that conviction to be in a business where you reject your clients 95% of the time. I don't know any other business that would do that. Yeah. So, so you have this successful consulting firm and a client comes to you and says, I want you to help me solve this problem. And you look and you're like, eh, I'm not impressed with the problem. Forget it. Go somewhere else. You know? Right. And particularly when the problem is as personal as philanthropy. It's like, you know, I've just given up my heart to this. And you're like, uh, well, you really shouldn't have 95% of the time. So what is, now there must be so many stories, but is there a consistency in the response that you get from the person you reject, which you do 95% of the time? Are they hurt, angry, appreciative, graceful? How, do they, how does the ordinary person, if such a question can be asked, feel when they get rejected by you? I always set up the expectations that the answer is going to be no. It's unlikely because we are trying to find programs that are going to be appealing 
to a number of our clients. We're not here simply to help you. We're here to catalyze the work that you're doing so that we can bring our other wealthy clients on board to help solve this problem. So we will look at this. We will do due diligence. We'll see, is there external evidence of impact? Is there potential for scale? And do we think we can get other clients mobilized around this? It's pretty easy to tell right away. You can even look at a website and know you can tell if the organization has rigorous process. Yeah, we've gotten really good at it. I've seen thousands and thousands of proposals and met with thousands of people looking for money. And so almost in the first five minutes, it's a terrible thing to say, but you can, you just know the way they approach it when they start selling without engaging in a discussion or they give you a lot of jargon without talking about facts and data. You know, you just, you can smell it a mile away. Well, you know, we at African Mission Healthcare are so blessed to be working with you and uh, just a, a great partnership. And thank you for all that you do uh, with African Mission Healthcare, but also just for the cause of philanthropy and for really uh, showing everyone how it should and can be done. Thank you. It's such an honor to work with you. I'm glad that yours was one of the 5% to get through. It's a great program. We're really thrilled with it. And keep doing the great work you're doing because it's really important to thousands of lives. Real lives are on the line. Well, thank you. You are.